I'm just going to buy wholeheartedly into the stereotype right now and not even try and dodge it. Y'all know today my opening illustration is going to have to do with my baby. You know it's going to. Um, I promise it, it does relate to the text, though. I'm not just going to gonna milk baby for all, all she's worth right now, but it, I, I really do think that this one applies. Um, as I know, some of y'all know that, that uh, was shared with you last week. When we were in the hospital, little Margaret Claire um, had to go to the nursery for a little bit because she was dealing with some jaundice. So they have to lay on the little, the little bed, you know, that gives her the little UV light to help her body process everything it needed to. So up until that point, our baby had not left our room. But now she had to go to the nursery. And Emily told me, she said, Josh, I'm concerned that you go everywhere this baby goes. You never let this baby out of your sight. Her great fear was that we were going to be on one of those television shows where your baby gets swapped with somebody else's baby and you don't find this out until like 16 years down the road when you realize you've been raising somebody else's child. That was like her greatest fear. She did not want this to happen. So all of the things that they put on your baby to make sure that you don't get your baby swapped with somebody else's. They put this little band on baby's ankle that has a number on it, and they put this little band on your arm that has a number on it. And every time the baby comes in or goes out of the room, they check your band to make sure baby's band matches yours. So there's that one. And then the nurses started laughing at me because I called the, what they put on her other ankle the anti-shoplifting device. Because um, it looks like what you see in a store that they put on something to keep you from shoplifting. And it had this little, this little medallion on it that if baby goes past a certain point, the hospital alarm goes off. Like you can't take a baby that's still wearing one of those past one of the little sensors. So you had that one. Uh, but when they were taking baby to the nursery, Emily said, okay, you wheel baby down there and then you watch her so that you know where she is and then we, we won't lose baby. Well, I got there, and I kind of had a chuckle to myself because because of the time she was born, which was oh dark thirty in the morning, there weren't that many babies in the nursery. Most of them were back in their room at this point. But every single baby in the nursery had a totally different skin tone than mine. Every baby had a totally different skin tone from each other. No two babies were even remotely visibly similar. So I was like, well, I mean, I don't really have to worry about my child getting confused for someone else's, and none of them have to worry about their child getting confused for mine. They all look so different that it's obvious, just upon a quick glance, this baby is not this baby, and vice versa. They're totally different people with totally different characteristics. We've been going through the book of Ephesians, and the passage that we're in today has to deal with Christians versus unbelievers and the fact that they are totally different spiritual species. They look different. They behave different. They speak differently. That They should not be confused one for another. Kind of like whenever I was looking through the window in the nursery and when other parents were looking through the window into the nursery, there was no confusion as to which baby was, was yours. You knew. You could tell when you looked at it. Either that is my baby or that's not my baby. They were all different. 
Christians and non-Christians should be easy to tell apart, honestly. So if you do me the, the honor of turning in your copy of God's Word to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, we're going to be in the first seven verses today. And I have titled our sermon, Imitators of God. Imitators of God. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we'll start in the first verse of chapter 5, and we'll keep going right through the end of verse 7. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Father, I pray that you would bless us to understand your word. Make us look more like you by the end of today um, than we were when we got here. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I do want to point out at the very beginning, even though you don't hear the second term until later on in this passage, I want you to notice that in verse 1, Paul says, Dear children... And in verse 6, Paul says the wrath of God is coming on sons of disobedience. I'll say this at the beginning of this sermon. I'll say it again when we get to it. I've said it before. Not everyone is God's child. That is straight Bible. And it's not necessarily popular to say. Now, if you want to say that God created us all, yes, in that sense, we're all God's children. But in terms of everyone has a relationship with God, everyone is on good terms with God, no. Everyone is not God's child. And we do a disservice as Christians when we say that. We, we, we lead people into a false sense of security. And what Paul is doing here in this passage is Paul is drawing distinctions between children of God and sons of disobedience. There's a difference. So we're going to look at a comparison between each of them and see maybe what Paul means. And I'm going to compare them one to another almost directly. So starting out in verse 1, Christians, first point, imitate God and reject sin because we are his children. Look at verse 1. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. Now, anytime you see a therefore, you need to do what? You need to go back and see what the therefore is there for. Um, so anytime Paul says therefore, he's going to point us back to what he was just immediately talking about. Now, I know it's two Sundays ago, but what Paul just immediately did is Paul compared actions that you took in your old life before Christ and actions that you now take now that you know Christ. The old life without Christ and the new life with him should be different. Amen? You, you should not be living the same once you come to know Christ as you were before you knew him. There are certain things that people who don't know Jesus do. Certain things that people who know Jesus do. They are not the same. 
So Paul begins to draw this distinction there, and we ended that sermon by, in verse 32 by saying, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That introduces the concept that Paul is going to drill down on today. That as a Christian, we should be looking to Christ as our model for how we live and obey God. If Christ did it and we are able, we should do it. If Christ thought it, we should think it. If Jesus held a position, we should hold that position. That we are to imitate Jesus in everything we do. And Paul explicitly says that in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Now, this word, imitator, when you look at it in Greek, bears a lot of resemblances to the English words mime and mimic. I love mimes, even though they scare me. Uh, they're kind of like clowns. They're supposed to be funny, but they're actually terrifying. Um, mimes and mimics, they're the ones who can convey things to you by their actions. You know, pantomiming someone is mimicking their actions. You know, if, if I raise my right hand, then someone pantomiming me is going to raise their right hand. And then this is the game that children play when they copy each other. Have you ever seen this? One kid says something, and the next kid says the exact same word, and the other kid starts copying, then eventually the first kid starts crying because he doesn't know why, but this kid's copying me, and it upsets me. Uh, I, I never understood why that bothers children, but they can't stand to be copied. Uh, that's the word kind of that Paul is using here. He says, imitate God. When you see God raise his right hand, you raise it. When you see God say something, you say it. When you see God do something, you do it. Imitate him. Mimic him. Pantomime him. Do as, as much as the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to, that's what God's calling you to do. Imitate God. We are to copy or mimic specifically what Jesus did. Now, the next phrase, though, is extremely important. And we're probably going to camp here for a little bit before we move forward. He says, be imitators of God as what, church? Dear children, little children. Our family heritage in Jesus Christ should be the cause of our obedience. It is not an effect of our obedience. What do I mean when I say that? We don't imitate and mimic God so that God will adopt us as children. We don't do good so that God will call us His. You can't ever do enough good to merit that. You can't. So what's the point of doing good? You do good and you mimic God because He has adopted you in Christ. Doing good obedience for a Christian should never be an I have to do this. You should never look at the Christian life and go, man, I've got to do this. Man, I've got to go to church. Man, I've got to pray. Man, I've got to read my Bible. Man, I've got to give my tithe. Man, I've got... That should not be your reaction. Your reaction should be, wow, I get to do this. I get to go to church because I've got a relationship with the creator of the universe. I get to give my tithe because God doesn't need my resources, but he's giving me the privilege of being involved in what he's doing. 
I get to read my Bible because I understand that, you know, 600 years ago, churches may have only had one Bible chained to the pulpit because the Word of God was so expensive to have a copy of, while there might have only been one in the town. And I'm so privileged that I have one myself. I get to. You don't do this so that God will be pleased with you. You obey God and you imitate Him because He's already pleased with you in Christ. That should free you up, Christian. If you lay down on your bed, you go in there at night, checking off your list in your mind. Okay, I read my Bible today. Okay, I prayed today. Okay, I gave to somebody who was hungry today. I did say that nasty word, so maybe, uh, God, God's not totally happy. Stop that. Stop it. You are killing yourself as far as your faith is concerned. You are so worried of whether or not you have made God happy with you that you are missing the fact He's totally happy with you based on what Jesus has already done. You imitate Him as a child, not in order to be a child. Does that make sense? This passage is, you're going to completely and totally mishear me unless you understand the grace that you have in Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here today and you think the essence of Christianity is, I'm going to behave, I'm going to do good things, and I'm not going to do bad things so that God will like me and not send me to hell when I die, you have totally missed the Christian faith. Totally missed it. What Christianity is, is I can't do good things, I can't do right things, I can't please God by behaving, but praise God, Jesus pleased His Father for me by doing all of it and then gives me His righteousness and takes my sin on Himself on the cross so that when God looks at me, He sees Jesus' righteousness. When God looks at me, He sees Jesus' purity and He's adopted me. Therefore, I love my daddy and I'm excited. I'm going I'm to please Him. I'm not trying to earn His favor. Jesus has already done that for me. We imitate God as dear children, not in order to become dear children. This is your motivation. Emily and I laugh all the time because we share this characteristic. When we were little um, in, in our respective houses, the worst punishment that our parents could give us was to look down and say, I'm just disappointed in you. It was like my world caught fire. I just, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't want to disappoint my mama. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to do things that would make her happy. I wasn't afraid of getting my tail tore up if I didn't get an A. I knew that it would make her happy if I did. I wasn't doing it to try and avoid punishment. I was doing it because I knew she loved me and it would make her happy if I did this. It's kind of the same way with God. If he's your father, you're his child. He loves you already. And this may shock some of you, but he actually likes you too. He's already pleased with you based on what Jesus did. If you know him through Christ, you don't have to earn him liking you. But don't you want to please him? Imitators of God as dear children. 
And then second, in verse 2, Paul gives us the ultimate example. He says, walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The chief expression of the imitation of God is walking in love. And perfect obedience to God is perfect godly love. How do we know what that looks like? Look at Jesus. That is perfect godly love. Perfect godly love is perfect obedience to God. Obedience and love are inextricably tied together. You cannot have one without the other. If you want to be an imitator of God, then you have got to love with godly love. You've got to walk in godly obedience, which is loving with godly love. You can't obey and not love or love and not obey. The two of them go hand in hand, hand in glove together. That's what it means to imitate God. Listen to what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. This is on your handout. Somebody had asked Jesus, what's the, what's the chief commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment? And here's Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Okay, so let's sum this up. Love God with everything you have. Verse 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sum it up. Love your neighbor like you'd love yourself. I mean, you can't really break that down any farther. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. Then here's what Jesus said about these two commandments. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He didn't say that these two replace all the rest of the law and the prophets. He said that they all hang on these two. That means obeying all of the other commandments hinges on whether or not you obey these two. If you think that you perfectly obey God and you can't stand the person in the seat next to you, you're in disobedience. If you are just full of emotion and you just love God and you love people, but you don't obey a single other thing this word says, you don't love God. Love and obedience are totally and completely tied together in an inseparable way. If you want to obey God, you have to love your neighbor. If you want to love God and love your neighbor. If you want to really love God and love your neighbor, you have to do it in obedience. The two of them are tied together. Take Jesus, for example. Jesus, was he obedient or disobedient to the Father? He was obedient, totally, completely, in every facet of his life. Has there ever been another human being that loved more perfectly than Jesus Christ? No. It's no coincidence that you find perfect obedience and perfect love in the same place. As a Christian, we are to imitate our Father which means that we are to obey and we are to love God with all we have and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Because on those two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Obedience hinges on that. And I added to John 14, 15 on your handout. You'll notice I put ESV beside it. 
The reason I use the ESV is because the King James and New King James, in my opinion, is slightly misleading. They don't mean to be, but the translation can be slightly misleading. Um, the King James says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus is saying, prove it by keeping my commandments, if you read the King James. When you boil it down in Greek, though, that's not a command. Jesus is not giving a command in the Greek. Jesus is just making a factual statement. And you see it related this way in the ESV. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is just saying, if you love me, you're going to obey me. That's just the truth. If you love me, you're going to obey me. You're going to do what I said to do. You're going to imitate me. You're going to listen to my words. You're going to care about what I have to say. And if you don't love me, you won't. This is why I just read lights and sirens and bells and whistles go off when somebody says something to me like, I love Jesus, I love God, but I can't stand the church. Really? Well, I love God. I know everybody's His children. We've already talked about that, but this is what I hear. I love God. I know everybody's His children, but that person just, I can't stand them. Well, I love God and I love Jesus, but I ain't going to give that church my money. Well, I love God. I just, they, they, they want to take all my time. No. Obedience should be a joy for us as Christians. It's not a chore. We are privileged to get to obey God. We are privileged to get the commands of God. We're privileged to hear His voice and to know, thus says the Lord. These are all benefits. This is good. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The, the idea is that because of our love for God, because of his love for us, because of the fact that we have been adopted as his dear children, our love for him will spur us on to obedience. It's not something that we should all the time have to force ourselves to do. That's why I was excited to be back here today. I missed it. I missed y'all. I missed doing this. I'm sitting there in the hospital waiting on them to bring baby back, and I'm like, I wonder what Tim's preaching on. I wonder who's there. What are we? I, I wanted to know what was happening. I missed y'all. And then verse 3 and 4, uh, Paul gives a list. It's not meant to be exhaustive, and I don't want us to necessarily focus on these individual sin-type things yet because I don't think that's necessarily just Paul's point, but he says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. You hear that phrase? As is fitting for saints. Look at verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Paul says, Christians, there are certain things that are not fitting in your life. It's how, this is why your mom and dad used to say, we don't do that in this family. 
That's not the way we behave. That's not what Mosleys do. That's not what, insert your family surname, that's not what we do. Our family doesn't do that. That's what Paul's saying right here. So Christians, family, there are certain things we just don't do. What are these things? First, the word fornication. Fornication by itself, just as an English word, means sex outside the bonds of marriage. But that is not strictly the Greek word that Paul uses. The word Paul uses is the word porneia. It is a general catch-all term that means basically any kind of sexual deviance or misconduct. It's not just one thing, it's the whole gamut. So pretty much Paul says if there's anything that would fall into this category of sexual immorality, uh-uh. No. What about this? Uncleanness. Uncleanness, because Paul says, but fornication and all uncleanness. That can mean ritual or moral impurity. The best way that I know how to explain this to you was Scripture, so this is on your handout. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. Paul says, God did not call us to uncleanness, same word, even in the Greek, but in holiness, set-apartness. So if holiness or sanctification, some translations may have, if holiness means to be set apart, to be separate from the rest of the world, then what does uncleanness mean? What does impurity mean? You write in there mixed in with everything else. Church, Paul said you ought to be separate. You ought to be kind of carved out. That whatever else you see, go whatever direction the world is going, that does not control the direction you go. You're separate. You're set apart. You're a different group. Uncleanness. Covetousness. Simply put, covetousness is greed. At its core, it's the belief that God has exercised his generosity incorrectly. Anytime I covet what belongs to my neighbor, I say in my heart that God was wrong and he should have given it to me. That's what covetousness is. Paul says these things are not fitting for saints, not even to be named among us. That it should be inconceivable for somebody out there to tie any of these things to any of us. Why? Because our family doesn't do that. It's not fitting for saints. What about these next lists? Filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting. Uh, filthiness is filthy language. These are all things to do with the tongue. Foolish talking. Now, this, is, this doesn't mean just saying silly things. This means just wasting our time. Spinning wheels. Uh, just chitter-chattering when we should be getting stuff done. Um, you know, I hear horror stories of churches that anytime they want to get something done, it's got to come out of a committee to go into a subcommittee who has to go through it, and then they divide people out to go and research things, and it comes back to the subcommittee, which, which then has to go back to that committee, and then that committee has to present it to the deacons, and then the deacons have to conference over it before they bring it into the rest of the church, and then the church has to have two weeks to review the information for the meeting, and then they come back and decide whether or not they want to accept. Do you see what I'm saying? It just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And there's a difference between a desire for due diligence and foolish talking. Paul is basically saying, church, if you know what needs to be done, do it. 
Let's not just chitter-chatter. Um, and then finally, coarse jesting. That one's pretty clear, coarse joking. Um, you know, I've, I've never heard anybody in this building tell a dirty joke. Yay. Coarse jesting. He said these things are not fitting. Instead of using our mouths for these things, use our mouths for giving thanks. We should be different, set apart. These things are not fitting because our family doesn't do that. Um, and then finally, application here for this first part. Because of a Christian status as God's child, he should obey the commandments of God out of love for him, not out of some labored sense of duty. Christian, this is the encouragement part of the, this message for you. That if you know Christ, you are already a child of God. He is already pleased with you. You don't need to lose sleep over that. He loves you. He likes you. He's proud of you. You are the apple of his eye. He cannot wait to give you the new heaven and the new earth that he's been preparing ever since the foundation of the world. He cannot wait to do that. He's excited. You need to stop losing sleep over whether or not he likes you. He likes you. He loves you. He's pleased with you because of what Jesus did. So knowing that, doesn't that make you want to please him? It should. That should take the fear out of it. should take the fear out of a lot of other things, too. Can't sum it up better than Peter. Peter's a better preacher than me. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. If God is holy and we are his children, then we are called to be holy just like our daddy. That's why. Because we're children. We're his children. Therefore, we ought to look like our daddy. Jesus ought to be able to walk to the nursery window and pick us out because we look like him. Does that make sense? That's, but I, I told you that opening illustration made sense with the, with the message. I, just, I didn't just want to tell another baby story. So second, so if Christians, if Christians imitate God and reject sin because we're his children, then it goes to reason that idolaters accept sin and reject God because they're not his children. Look at verse 5. Now we get to have fun. For this you know. Paul stops to say, this ought to be common knowledge amongst you. This ought to be basic. For this you know, that no... Now these next words you're about to hear. In the last verse that we read, that said fornication, uh, uncleanness, or covetousness, that Paul treated almost kind of like verbs in that sense, not exactly grammatically, please English teachers don't call me, I know that they're not actually verbs in the previous verse, but in this verse Paul takes them and turns them into people. It's not fornication, it's a fornicator. It's not uncleanness, it's an unclean person. It's not just covetousness, it's a covetous man, an idolater. Paul says, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. All those words were in past tense. That meant at some point this was you, but after coming to Christ, this shouldn't be you anymore. Coming to Christ, coming to Jesus, is not coming to God for Him to rubber stamp your life the way it is right now. It's not coming to God for Him to pat you on the back and tell you it's all okay, that I love you and you don't have to change anything, but I'm going to keep you out of hell. That's not what coming to Jesus is. Accepting Christ and believing the gospel is also accepting the truth that... Be, has anybody ever heard somebody say, well, I just, I just want to... I need to just be myself. This is the world's chief encouragement. Be yourself. You be you. The world does not want to consider that something might be wrong with being yourself. This Bible tells me that there is a lot wrong with me being myself. Because there is something wrong with myself. It's called sin. Myself is broken. Myself is twisted. Myself is selfish. Myself is self-centered. Myself is greedy. Myself is angry. Myself is jealous of people who have what I want. Myself is all full of all kinds of nasty stuff that being myself is the world's way of saying, let it out. Let it out. Nobody has the right to tell you not to be you. You do what you want. You eat what you want. You go to that tree if you want it. Who has the right to tell you you can't eat that fruit? It's good for food. It's pleasing to the eyes. It's desirable to make one eye wise. You go ahead, Eve. You be yourself. See where that comes from? Don't be deceived, Paul says. God wants you to be yourself after he gives you a new self. He doesn't want you to be the self you are right now. Because the self you are right now, if you don't know him, is a sinful, rebellious idolater who is in his wrath. And Paul had to say, you ought to know that no one who consistently lives in their sin with no desire, not, they're not even conscious of the fact that it's sin. In, in our passage today, he mentions fornicators, unclean persons, covetous men, and idolaters. But in 1 Corinthians 6, it's this long laundry list. And he had to tell them, don't be deceived. The reason that we're saved is not because God looks at our sin and tells us it's okay. It's because he looked at our sin, said it wasn't okay, and sent his son to die for it so that we could be separated from it and be different. He gives you a new life. He doesn't tell you your old one's okay. 
That's why a call to come to Christ is a call to die to self. It is a call for yourself to die. But I want this. I want this. I have this desire. Yes, you do. Put that desire to death. Kill it. One of the old Puritans used to say, if you're not busy killing sin, sin will be busy killing you. Somebody's going to die at the other end of this. It's either going to be your sin or it's going to be you. And Paul is trying to get in their face and tell them, because remember, where, what city do the Christians live in that the book of Ephesians was written to? Ephesus. Ephesus is surrounded and inundated with pagan temples and religion. For example, how about this? Here's, here's a great example. One of the temples very near Ephesus had temple prostitutes. It would have been totally culturally acceptable for any of the people who were new Christians to go into the temple and pay for the use of a temple prostitute. And do you know what the reaction would have been? People would have probably said, well, it's about time you got back to righteous living. Those Christians had you out of your mind. Glad you're back to worshiping the right gods with the rest of us. And that's blowing my mind right now, even as I'm like preaching this sermon, that the idea of someone going to a pagan temple prostitute would have been viewed as righteous. But it would have. They would have considered that a good thing. They would have been patted on the back and told that you're living right again, you're making the gods happy, we're so glad, you're back in the community, you're accepted, you're loved, this is what all of us do. Best case scenario, it would have been viewed as righteous. Worst case scenario, they would have said, everybody does this. Paul had to go to these Christians and say, do not be deceived. It does not matter how many people tell you sin is okay. It doesn't matter if they're wearing temple clothes. It doesn't matter if they call themselves a priest. It doesn't matter if they call themselves a senator. It doesn't matter if they call themselves a president. It doesn't matter if they call themselves a boss. It doesn't matter if they call themselves a news anchor. It doesn't matter if they call themselves a lobbyist. It doesn't matter if they call themselves your best friend or your neighbor. If they call sin okay, they are lying. And Paul cared a lot about them hearing that. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That Paul was telling us in 2 Timothy, he was actually telling Timothy, but he's telling us as well, that there's going to come a day, and y'all... Turn on your TV, flip it to TBN or, or, or something, and see if you can't find a teacher who's, who's telling people what they want to hear. Find a TV preacher. You just send me this little seed, and I promise you, your miracle's on the way. Well, if you hadn't got your healing, you just don't have enough faith. Or maybe you haven't given enough. Or, 
Or maybe, maybe just for years, you know, the, the, the church has just, we've just been too, we, we've just been too hardcore about things that can't, can't a man and a man or a woman and a woman just love each other and then be righteous and monogamous just like the rest of us? Like, why are we, why are we making such a big deal about it? Have you heard any of this? Y'all, LifeWay's had to pull authors' books on the shelf because they came out and said, we don't believe what the Bible says about marriage anymore. We think that we're actually more righteous than Jesus, who believed in a biblical definition of marriage. Hello? I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because I'm incredulous. And let me stand behind this pulpit and tell you, on the authority of God's word, it's only going to get worse. And Paul wanted to go so far to say, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It is not a popular thing to talk about sin and judgment in the year 2017. But I'm a crazy, fire-breathing, hellfire and brimstone Baptist preacher, and I'm going to do it. Not because it's my opinion, but because it's in here. I'm going to say this as compassionately as I can. Do not be fooled. You, your friends, your loved ones, your neighbors who are persisting in a sinful lifestyle with what seems to be impunity. Nothing's coming of it. It's all fine. Let's live and let live. Let me warn you, there will come a day when the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. We have it in black and white right here. And I'm not saying this to talk down. I'm not saying this to berate. I'm not saying this to browbeat or Bible thump or scream and be mean and be judgmental. I'm saying this out of compassion and as a warning. Turn them away from their sin. Warn them. Tell them. Here's what God says in his word. Well, I don't know. Isn't that book old? Yes, it is. And God's older than the book. And neither of them have changed. When I say God's older than the book, that's, that's complicated. <laughs> God is older than this physical book. <laughs> don't be deceived. Sin is not okay. It's not okay now. It won't be okay tomorrow. It wasn't okay yesterday. It will never be okay. It has never been okay. 
Culture changes. Times change. What about progress? What about the, the history moving forward? Don't you, aren't you afraid of being on the wrong side of history? No, I'll tell you. I, I like that history is literally just the words, his story. It belongs to him. I'm not worried about being on the wrong side of it. I'm on the side of the guy who owns it. And anybody who thinks otherwise, they're deceived. Stand firm on that. Don't waffle back and forth. I love C.S. Lewis. He said one time, one time, if people are walking the wrong direction, the one who is the most progressive is the one who turns around and starts going backward first. Progress doesn't mean we just keep going forward if we're going the wrong direction. It means admitting we were wrong and turning around and going the other way. I'm not worried about progress. I'm worried about righteousness. I'm worried about the God who saved me. I'm worried about the souls of those who reject Him. Don't be deceived. One day the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. And then finally, in one of the most scathing rebukes in all of Scripture, I'm going to actually turn there as we're wrapping up. It's in the 8th chapter of John. You can join me there if you wish. This isn't on your handout, but I will point to several things Jesus said to make his point. Verse 39, the second half of, or verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Then in verse 41, Jesus says, you do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Verse 42, Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. I proceeded forth and have come from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. If you love God, you would do godly deeds. Then finally, Jesus answers why they're having so much trouble with him. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. And the popular English proverb will sum up our application for this second half. The apple truly does not fall far from the tree. If we are children of God, if we love him, in the words of Jesus himself, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. If God's our father, we will do godly things. If we're descendants of Abraham, then we'll exhibit the faith of Abraham. But to live devilishly, to live sinfully, to live deceitfully, Jesus said in John 8, 44, you know who your father is. So let me encourage you today, exam, examine yourself. Do you see in your life fruit of God being your father? I am not asking you, are you perfect? I'm not asking you if you don't screw up. Your pastor screws up. 
your pastor gets frustrated and gets snippy and sometimes says things he shouldn't say when he gets frustrated and gets mad when he shouldn't get mad and gets impatient when he shouldn't get impatient. I'm a human. I'm one of the most disorganized, out there, frustrating people you will ever meet, I promise. Get to know me. I'm lovable. I'm a broken person too, but I'm a redeemed broken person who's got, who God's goal is to make me look more like his son every day until the day I die, and then one day when I see him, I shall be made like him. That, that's my destiny. That's where I'm heading. I'm not perfect now, but praise God, one day I will be. And if you're a Christian, that's your destiny too. If you're not a Christian, your destiny is the wrath of God to be poured out on the sons of disobedience, who, outside of Christ, that group includes you. But heaven's adoption agency is open. Paperwork's already signed. Price has been paid. All you got to do is show up. Do you want to be adopted by God today? Do you want him to be your father? Do you want to be part of a different family, to be given a new life, to be given a new self, a new start, a new destiny, a new hope? Guess what? You can have that. Jesus paid that price for you. It's wide open. All you have to do is respond. If you want to know what it means to know Jesus Christ, to have that new start today, then there are a few things you can do coming up. In just a second, Preston's going to lead us in a couple of verses. You've got several different options. You can go old school and you can come down the aisle and you can come meet me here at the front. I promise I won't shove a microphone in your face. Um, you can chat with me just for a second. I want to set up a time to sit down and talk with you more and share the gospel with you and make sure we're all on the same page. If you don't want to come down the aisle, maybe that scares you. If you've got a bulletin, there's a guest card on the side of it. You can fill out and put that in the offering plate as it comes by. If you're visiting here with us this morning, we don't want your money. That would be your gift to us if you would just fill that out and put it in the offering plate for us to follow up with you. Um, also, at the end of the service, I'll be standing by the back door. Catch me right then. Let me know you need to talk, and we'll set up a time to do that. I just don't want you to leave here today without having an opportunity to trust Jesus Christ. Okay? I'm going to pray. Preston and uh, Joyce are going to lead us in some music, and if you need to come, you come. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the privilege of being back amongst your people here in Stapleton. Lord, I pray that uh, if there's anybody in here today, uh, maybe a Christian that says, you know what, I, I've been you know, maybe engaging in some things that are not fitting for me as a saint, and I need to leave them at the foot of the cross. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that there's grace for them, that you're pleased with them, that you love them based solely on the work of Jesus on the cross, that you, you are pleased with them based on that, and that you have given them the grace to leave that behind at the foot of the cross and walk forward in newness of life. Lord, I pray that you would just impart that to them. And I pray if there's somebody here today who has not ever trusted you, Lord, I pray that you would convict them in the person of the Holy Spirit and you would let them know truthfully in their soul that they are a member of the sons of disobedience destined for your wrath to be poured out on them if they do not trust you, if they do not come to you in faith and repentance. So, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.